would love to have you take out a Bible and turn with me to this Old Testament book of Daniel. If you need a Bible, there are red ones that look like this in the seat in front of you. And you'll find Daniel in uh, the Old Testament, in page 805, right after the prophet Ezekiel is, uh, is where you can find Daniel. I hope everybody had a good week. Everybody got their fill of the state fair? Everybody got their fill of the state fair without ever going to the state fair? Uh, some, of, some of you? Very cool. So that's no, a big deal for our community. So uh, hopefully you got to enjoy it if that is your thing. Um, we come like every week and we sing these amazing songs. And if you're paying attention to what you're singing, which before words come out of your mouth, I would always sort of recommend like knowing what those words are, right? So sometimes we can just kind of like get caught up and I'm just going to sing the words on the screen. Uh, but, it, but it's good to know like these words that we're singing, they are, they are powerful. Uh, we are making bold declarations uh, about the world as we see it. Declarations about who runs the world. Declarations about Jesus being king. This last song uh, that we sang, just, it talked about Jesus being king. We see him as the king of glory. And this is like, this is what Christians believe, right? I mean, we, we trust that Jesus, uh, he was crucified, that he died, uh, he was buried, he was, uh, was raised on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father is this position of power and authority. Um, last week, we talked about resurrection, right? We talked about living in light of resurrection. And we used uh, this, this letter to the New Testament church, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at how the, the Apostle Paul calls the church to live in light of this future resurrection. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, just to remember these words from last week, Paul says, For he, Christ, must reign. Right? That's king language. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In Paul's mind, in the mind of Christians, Jesus is reigning right now. That we live in this moment between the resurrection of Jesus, um, when he sort of uh, defeated the powers of sin and darkness and evil, and between the time when he returns to sort of establish his kingdom fully, forever, and renew everything that's, that's broken and lost. We live in this sort of in-between time, and Jesus is reigning right here and right now. Do you believe that? So here's the question I have. And here's the question I think the book of Daniel leads us to ask, is what happens when it's hard to believe that? Like, like, what happens when all of the evidence seems to point in the opposite direction? When, when you look around and it looks like, well, Jesus and the kingdom that, that he talked about, the kingdom that he lived, this world doesn't look much like that. It looks, all the evidence seems to point to the fact that there are powerful people a small number of powerful people who run the world. And um, they cause all sorts of pain. And they inflict their will on others. There's all sorts of violence in the world. Um, today, as we uh, gather here for worship, there are somewhere around 68 million refugees. 68 million refugees. 
These are people just like us, who have families, who have stories, who have lives, careers, who've been forced to leave their homes. I'm forced to flee, most of the time because of violence, because somebody made a decision to inflict their will on some other people, and, and carnage is the result. That doesn't look like Jesus or his kingdom. About half of the world's population lives in chronic hunger, just doesn't have enough to eat, survives on about $2 a day. There's billions of people. That doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't look like the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Uh, There are social problems, right? I mean, just um, racism, right? We just can't seem to break sort of these, these, uh, these bonds of racism in our culture. It still just keeps flaring up. Uh, there's this um, chronic despair that has settled in on so many people that we feel like we have no other option than to self-medicate. Uh, that opioid abuse and uh, death by opioid overdose is reaching chronic levels. And so, like, none of this looks like the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. None of this looks like his justice and his love and his peace and his mercy and his goodness. It looks like the opposite. And so how do we live in this place where we sing these songs with integrity and with the eyes of faith and we believe them, and yet we live in a world that doesn't always look like Jesus? That is the question that Daniel leads us to. So, take a look with me at Daniel chapter 1. We're we're jumping into this series. It's a seven-week series, and I'm incredibly excited about it. Some of you have, uh, maybe you've never heard the story of Daniel before, um, set about 600 years before Christ. It's a long time ago. Uh, So you might be skeptical of, like, what does, if if you're new to faith or scripture, you might be skeptical of saying, what is a what does an ancient text like that have to say to us today? And I, I hope by the time we're done this morning, you'll say a lot. Um, maybe some of you, you've encountered Daniel through the flannel graph, right? If you grew up in Sunday school, you can, you have like, you have the smell. Can you smell like what your kid's room was like in church as a, churches like old churches all seem to have that same smell. And you have the, the flannel graph with the little Daniel and the lions. And so you know those stories from the flannel graph. Um, this is Pictionary for flannel grab or whatever, charades. Um, <clears throat> or maybe it's Veggie Tales. Some of you have encountered Daniel through Veggie Tales. And it's great. Like, Veggie Tales does a fantastic job of, of just getting these stories in our children, making them a part of us. And yet, sometimes we come to these stories, those of us who have heard them before, and we need to, like, let go of a whole lot of stuff. <clears throat> because to package these stories to kids... We, we sort of take the edge off of them. And then you realize, like, these are not children's stories. These are, these are stories that are, that are horrific, that are full of violence and pain. And, and so sometimes we need to, like, hear them again with fresh eyes to say, okay, there is, there is powerful stuff that God is speaking to us here. And so we want to hear those um, beyond veggie tales. So let's take a look. Daniel chapter 1. Let's just jump right on in. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. 
These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. Now, let's just stop right there. When you read the Old Testament, or you read the Bible, right, you're, you're reading names that are not all that common. I've never met anybody named Ashpenaz. So here's real quick hints. Um, you have two options when you're reading this out loud. One is you just make something up and you pretend like you know how to say it and then everybody else is like, oh, they sound really smart. Or you do what I do and you get the Bible app on your phone and you hit that little play button that speaks the text to you and then you just say it however they say it on the Bible app. So there's, that one's for free. So, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court official, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal um, family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect or handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now the king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Uh, This seems like a high honor, right? eating food from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. Three years. It's like a master's program. And after that, they were entered the king's service. Among those who were chosen uh, were some from Judah. There was Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Michelle, and Azariah. Thank you, Bible app. Uh, verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name uh, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So, here's the story. Here's how, here's how this epic, epic um, account of Daniel begins. <clears throat> there is, um, the, the, the story starts in the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem. Now, maybe you know something about the city of Jerusalem. It was the, the capital city of Judah. This, this kingdom. Um, and, and Jerusalem was, for, a, for a, a Hebrew person or a Jewish person in the Old Testament, it was the center of their faith. The, the Jewish people, they loved the city of Jerusalem. They sang songs about marching up to Zion, right? I mean, they called it Zion. It was this, this picture, it was this image of like everything that God wanted to do. It was in Jerusalem. They loved Jerusalem. But in 587 B.C., So in 587 years before Christ, the city was completely destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army came in. They besieged it. That means they surrounded it. They cut off. It was one of these cruel tactics of of big armies. They They would cut off the flow of goods, commerce, in and out of the city, and they would starve the people inside. So that the walls that were there to protect you from outside forces became the walls that caged you in. So you can imagine months and months and months of starvation, you there with your families just trying to survive. And once the people inside the defenses were so weak, then they would attack, they would breach the walls, and they would just raise the city. And this is what happened to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem, the center of worship, the center of people's faith, was destroyed. It was a devastating loss for the Hebrew people. And so there was a personal trauma that these people endured. You try to put yourself in that place, right? I mean, you're, you're completely devastated by the trauma of the loss of life. But then it's not just the loss of life. There's spiritual trauma as well. 
Um, the people saw their land, it, they, they saw this city as inheritance from God. It was God's gift to them. And they didn't think they would ever lose it. They didn't think God would ever allow it to be in enemies' hands. And yet it happened. <clears throat> and now if the city of Jerusalem was the center of their faith, the temple in Jerusalem was the epicenter of their faith. Like the temple, it wasn't just a place of worship like you know our building here where you, you come for worship once a week. Uh, but the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. This is how they saw it. It was God's dwelling place was at the temple. And so surely God would never allow his temple to be destroyed. And yet, in 587, the temple was completely demolished. It was a heap of rubble. <clears throat> so this spiritual trauma. And then these articles that were, uh, it goes into detail here in Daniel 1, it says these articles that were in the temple that God had commissioned that were used in worship of God were carried off to Babylon, to this pagan temple, and they were put as like plunder, right? The spoils of war, they were just put in the storehouses of this God in Babylon. So, this is, um, this is how the story begins. There is a movement from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you feel that in the text? From, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And those who survived... Like those who survived and um, weren't, weren't either killed through starvation or weren't killed through the attacking army, they were then led on a 900-mile trail of tears from Jerusalem to Babylonia. 900 miles. So that's the setting. So uh, if, as you hold that in your minds, I, I want to just talk a little bit about the city of Babylon, where it came from, and, and, and how the Bible talks about Babylon. In, in the very beginning of the Bible, um, in Genesis chapter 11, you have a story of the Tower of Babel. Now, in the Old Testament, the word Babel and the word Babylon are not two separate words. It's the exact same word. So, in, in Genesis chapter 11, you have these people, the story of the Tower of Babel. You have these people who have sin in their hearts. That's a story of the, the Bible sort of tells. is like people chose to rebel against God, their creator, and sin it was like this, this, this seed of rebellion that got planted in the human heart. But the problem was it didn't just stay in the human heart. It spread. And, and it didn't just stay personal. It spread to whole cultures. It, it got momentum and it spread to whole systems. Sin is personal. We choose to sin. We have sin in our hearts. But the sin that is in our hearts, if it goes unchecked, it won't stay personal. It will spread to a whole culture, to a whole system, right? I mean, you, you recognize this, like, you might have racist tendencies. Like, there might be, like, these, these sort of vestiges of racism inside of us. And so you might have, like, an individual who struggles with this, but when it gets momentum and it spreads through a whole culture and you have racism, I mean, horrible, horrible atrocities that are done. So sin, it, it gets momentum. Um, other examples, we have lust inside of our hearts. Lust is this desire to take a person created in God's image, like a person who has unimaginable worth because they have God's fingerprints on them. They're made in God's image. To take a person and to turn them into an object to use for our own gratification. That's what lust is. And so we might have lust in our hearts, but what happens when lust gets momentum, it goes unchecked, and it impacts a whole culture? Well, now you have a whole sex industry. I mean, a whole industry, right, that, that's based on commodifying people. And it leads, to, it leads to human trafficking, to people actually being bought and sold as property. 
It's absolutely horrible stuff. Uh, a person who has a desire for control, to want to control others, it gets ahead of steam and it turns into just cultural oppression. Sin is both personal, but it's also systemic. Does that make sense? Let see that. We tend to maybe focus on one or the other, but it's both. It's both. And so, this sin that lives in your heart and in my heart, if it goes unchecked, it can cause horrific amounts of devastation. And so, Babylon is this picture of what happens when sinful people come together and they say, ah, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's pool our rebellion. Let, let, let's sort of get together and let's like, you know, let's, let's build this tower. Let's be our own God. Let's have the right to define what's good and what's evil on our own terms. That's what Babylon is. So here's the deal. Babylon is a physical place. It was a physical place that Daniel was, and his, his friends and his relatives were transported to. It was the capital city of, Babylonia, or, uh, of Babylon. And yet, the Bible talks about Babylon as this idea. It's, it's also a picture of human sin gone wrong. Does that make sense? Somebody nod your head if you're with me? All right. So it's, it's both ends. Now, we are caught between these two worlds. The world of Jerusalem. There's a movement from Jerusalem to Babylon. And we are caught between these two. Jerusalem, this picture of how the kingdom that God wants to set up, and Babylon, the kingdom that the sinful world leads us to. And and, and one of these kingdoms, the kingdom of God, it always looks like Jesus. I mean, it always looks like Jesus, and it's always marked by love, by self-sacrificing love. You want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like... Jesus um, giving himself, emptying himself, sacrificing himself. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. But the kingdom of, of Babylon, the kingdom of this world, it, it's not self-sacrificing, it's self-gratifying. It's self-exalting. It's, it's not built on sacrificing yourself for others, it's built on sacrificing others for the sake of yourself. And so we are caught in between these two worlds, and we have choices, and we make choices all the time to say, which one of these kingdoms am I going to live for? Like, where is my allegiance going to lie in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Babylon? That's how the Bible talks about Babylon. Now, now here's something that's, and again, as we open the series, it's something really interesting that is, is happening underneath the text that I think we have to just name here is that as it moves, the story moves from Jerusalem to Babylon, it's very clear who's the the winner and who's the loser. The winners are the Babylonians and their gods. And the losers are the Israelites and their god. That's how the story looks. Like the, the temple destroyed. The articles of the temple that were used to worship God carried off. Apparently, like, The way they saw it is God was powerless to stop it. And so they carried the articles off and they put them in the temples of these foreign gods. In this worldview, in the ancient world, the way people saw it was that gods were connected to the land, to the place, to the nation. And so if you read in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that they would talk about the gods of Assyria, the gods of Babylon, um, the gods sometimes even of Israel. So that your God was for your nation, and if God was for your nation, who was God against? Everybody else, right? This is how they saw the world. 
That, that God was, like, your God fought your battles for you. Your God protected your borders and your nation. And, and so your God was identified by your banner. This was your national deity. But then, like, let's say your nation fell. Let's say your government imploded or, or some other nation came and destroyed your people. On the surface, it looks like your God wasn't strong enough to save you. Like this God was a winner and your God was a loser. This, this is how the story of Daniel begins, this tension. Now, the, the Israelite people in the Old Testament, they knew better. They said, no, 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 our God is not the God of Israel. Our God is the God of the whole world. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who spoke the whole world into existence. But yet these people, these, these Israelite people had gotten caught up in this idea that, no, 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 God is especially for us, and he's against them. Here, here uh, the psalm, Psalm 137. The psalm was actually written about sitting in Babylon, 900 miles away from Jerusalem, sitting in exile with your city at home destroyed. Listen to how they talked about God and their city. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept, When we remembered Zion, on the poplars there we hung our harps, and there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of your songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Do you hear that? How can we sing one of the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Because God, what's implied is that God doesn't live here. God lives there, and our city is destroyed. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem. You think they love Jerusalem? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And then it goes on to say, the God of Israel. Do you hear what the Israelite people had done? God is our national deity. He's for us. He's going to protect our borders. And this is one of the reasons why, if you read the rest of the story in the Old Testament, this is why Daniel opens by saying, and the Lord delivered the Israelites into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That God actually withdrew his hand of protection, his hand of of just providence over them because they had completely missed the plot. They had no longer, they didn't start look, they weren't looking like the God who wanted all nations, all people to come to know him and to learn about his ways and to come into his kingdom. They started actually looking up very much like Babylon themselves. And so God said, I can't use you anymore. And God actually withdrew and they were conquered. So, this is the story. This is the backstory. But now the story, it narrows, right? And it focuses on this quartet of three or uh, four. The quartets are usually four people. Not very musical, if you can tell that. Um, these four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azra. And they were carried off, and these young men stood out. They were of royal blood. They were noble, noble birth. They were good-looking uh, young guys. They were smart, no defects. And uh, these young men were now property of the king. They were spoils of war. They were conscripted to serve the king, this king who had destroyed their life, their livelihood, everything. They were now to serve him, property of the king. And the king even changed their names. Uh, all of their names used to represent, uh, their, their, their Hebrew names, were, they represented their identity with God, their God. But now their names that they were changed to represented the gods 
of Babylon. This is what Babylon, this is what the, the idea of Babylon, this is what it wants to do, is it wants to even change our identity. Wants to, wants to own us, wants to take who we are. And so three years they were put in school to learn literature and the culture of Babylon. But let's see what happened. Verse 8. Verse 8. Now, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So um, notice that Daniel, he's resolved in his heart, I will not eat the food. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to eat the king's food uh, and, and drink the king's wine. But he doesn't, like, stand up and protest and say, like, you can't make me eat the food. Like, it's not what he does. He actually comes, like, with humility. And, and he asks, the, the guy who's in charge of him, he says, like, um, he asks for permission not to defile himself this way. And so verse 9, so God caused the official to show favor and compassion on Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I- I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned me your food and drink. Um, why should he see you looking worse than all the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. What runs the kingdom of Babylon? Why do people serve the king? Why do people serve those in charge? Fear. What's going to happen if you don't? King's going to have your head. Like the, that's how kingdoms of this world run on fear, the power to take life. Right? And so that's, it's not allegiance, it's not wanting to serve, it's out of fear. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azra, uh, verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. Just put us to the test. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Uh, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who ate all the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Who's signing up for the fruits and veggies and water? Anybody? They looked, they looked better than all the others who had eaten the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. Now, I'm sure Daniel was very popular among the other young men who were in the king's service. No veggies for you. So here's the deal. Daniel, like, his name has changed. He's now, he's learning all the literature of the Babylonians. He's like, he's in their education system. He's going along with all of that. But there's this line here that he says, I will not eat your food. Not going to cross it. Why? Like, why would he go along with all this stuff and not rebel against that, but he would not eat the food? Now, we could say, well, he was a Jew, so you can pretty much guarantee the king isn't eating kosher, right? And, And so... Maybe that was part of the deal. It's like, I'm not going to defile myself with non-kosher food. And that may very well be part of it. But it actually, I think, goes deeper than that. You see, food was actually used. The best food, the choicest food, was set in front of pagan idols as a sacrifice to them. So they would have ceremonies, worship ceremonies, uh, in these pagan cultures like Babylon, and they would set this, you know, this, this banquet like food in front of an idol made of wood or stone, and they would pour out the wine as kind of a symbol of offering to this god. Now, interestingly enough, the food was never consumed by this idol of wood or stone, right? It was just sort of there. Uh, and apparently, idols don't like veggies. So there's that. Um, and then... Um, and so Daniel was not going to participate in this kind of idol sacrifice. The, the food was then 
once it was set before the, the idols, it was then given to the king. Food was given to the king, and um, the king was worshipped as a god. Powerful people who run kingdoms like Babylon, they set themselves up as gods. They want to be worshipped. They want all the acclaim. And so this food was then set before the king, and, uh, and then after it was in the king's presence and the king ate what he had, then it was then given to his servants. And so here's why Daniel said no. is because to eat this food was to give his allegiance to the king and to Babylon. And Daniel said, I'm not going to do that. You can change my name. You can force me to learn what you want me to learn. But you cannot have the thing that I am going to give only to God. That is my allegiance, my heart, my soul. Food equaled allegiance. And Daniel drew a line and he resolved to not cross it. Now, when I was a kid, we used to say this a lot. We used to say, hey, so we're like, we're called as Christians to be in the world but not of the world. Have you heard this? Right? To be in the world, but not to be of the world. Which is another way of saying, like, we all kind of live in this broken world, right? I mean, this is, this is where our lives happen. They live in Babylon. We're surrounded by a culture of, of Babylon. And yet we're in this world, and we want to add value to this world, and we want to be good neighbors, and we want to, to, to go on with life and all of that. And yet we would say that we're not of this world. Like, there's, there's an allegiance that we have that, that's to someone and to somewhere else. And so, like Daniel, it raises all sorts of questions to say, what are the sorts of things that we're just going to say, you know what, this is a part of living in this world. We're going to make these choices that we're just going to go along with it. We're going to, this is what the culture is doing, and we're going to move that direction. And where are the places where we say, no, this is a line I will not cross. I will not give my allegiance to this person, to this thing. Where, where, what does it look like for God's people today living in but not of this world? We can expect as people of faith that we are going to be out of step with the rhythm of the culture around us. I mean, if, if, we, are just, if we don't feel any sort of dissonance between ourselves and the culture, it probably means that we are just sort of swimming with the stream of culture. But if there are places along the way where we feel like, you know what, this doesn't feel quite right. Like, I, I, I can't just go along with that. It, it's a fairly good sign that we're at least, we're thinking, we're evaluating, God, what do you want me to do differently? That's out of step, that's swimming upstream. So Daniel, this is what happened, uh, verse 17. It says, To these four young boys, and God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and, and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. That's going to come in really handy in the next few chapters. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service. So three years later, the chief official presents them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Which, notice what names are used in, in, uh, in verse 19. Is it, is it Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the names given to them in Babylon? What names are used? They're Hebrew names. Viva lo restance. Whatever, I can't speak French. Right? This is, a, this is like resistance. This passage is like, it's kind of sticking it to the man here a little bit. It's like, no, 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 you can call us what you want, but these are our names. 
Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians or enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Was God active in Babylon? What's happening under this text is that God is seen as the unseen mover behind everything. It was God who was the one who gave them favor with uh, Ashpenaz. It was God who was the one who who made their appearance better than all the others. It was God who was at work and, and made them ten times better and brighter than all of the others. God was at work in Babylon with Jerusalem destroyed, with the temple in ruins, God was active in this foreign land that did not look like their home. God is not a nationalistic deity. God does not belong to any nation, to any government, to any people group. God is the God of the whole world. This is what this text is calling us to. My favorite verse in all of chapter 1 is verse 21. Take a look at verse 21. So inspiring. Right? It says this, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. I'm going to start writing this on all the cards I sign, like life verse, Daniel 121. Isn't that awesome? Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know why that's so awesome? Do you know who King Cyrus was? He was not a Babylonian king. He wasn't an heir to the throne of Babylon. He was a Persian king. This story shows that there was this man, this slave, this Hebrew boy, Daniel, who was taken captive by, a, by an oppressive regime, was put into his service, had no power, but God was with him, and Daniel served in Babylon longer than the entire empire of Babylon lasted. That Daniel outlasted all of the kings of Babylon. So here's the deal. Like, if we put our allegiance in anything, in any kingdom, in any political system, in any nation, we can be guaranteed that they will rise and they will fall. This is how this works. This is how world history works. They will rise and they will fall. And if that is where our allegiance lies, we will rise and we will fall with them. But if our allegiance is in the kingdom of God that Jesus came, that he gave his life to establish a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom that always looks like Jesus giving his life away that can exist in any context, in any nation, in any place around the world. If we have given our lives to this kingdom, just like Gary said earlier, there is no reason to fear because God is the sovereign of all creation. God is the unseen mover and he is the one who we trust. This whole idea that there is a, a kingdom of God over here and a kingdom of Babylon over here, we got it wrong. Because the kingdom of God, it actually comes up through the cracks in the concrete of Babylon. This is what Jesus said. He said, you know what the kingdom is like? It's like a seed, a mustard seed, the smallest seed, and it gets planted right here in the soil, and it gets planted in your heart and in my heart when we give our lives to Jesus, and it just begins to grow. And most of the time, it's not, it's, there's not all that much fanfare. Sometimes you can't even see it, you can't even notice it, but it grows, and it just sort of springs up right here in this broken world, and, and it ends up, it ends up in this beautiful this unbelievably beautiful thing of God that everyone sees and is, is absolutely astounded by. This is what the kingdom is. 
we are planted. We are planted in this broken world to be seeds of the kingdom of God. God, we ask that as we, um, like as, as we think about this story, this amazing story of young men who were faithful to you, God, who risked their lives, who endured trauma and pain. And God, we know that there were, this is a story that just focuses on these four, and God, there were so many others. God, would you speak to us by the power of your Spirit? God, if there is sin in our hearts, God, that looks like Babel. It, it looks like pride. It looks like lust. It looks like control. God, would you just root it out of our hearts? Would you shine your light into those dark places? God, we don't want to participate with God, the, the, this broken way of the world and, and contribute to more brokenness in the world. Jesus, we tell you today, we tell you through our singing, we tell you through our prayers that you are our Lord, that our hearts are with you, that our allegiance is with you, that we are a part of your kingdom because of your love and your grace and you've invited us in. And so Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us and you would take God, take all of our hearts. God, we don't want, we want to resolve ourselves like Daniel. God, to not defile ourselves with anything that would pull our hearts away from you. And God, we ask that you would give us a vision of your kingdom growing up right here and right now in a world that looks broken, in a world that's full of pain. God, that you have called us to be people of peace and love and self-sacrifice right here and now. So God, we trust that you're doing this, that this is your work. And so we just ask, God, that you would continue to use us in Jesus' name.